You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. If you are a kindergartner, you're welcome to head to Bible study if you'd like. And for the rest of you, let me invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. Wow, they're racing off to Bible study. Such enthusiasm. Wonderful. Uh, But let me invite all of you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're here today, we're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we have been working through the book of Ephesians. And today we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. That will be our focal text. But as I prepare to read God's word for us, Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 15, because verse 15 through verse 23 is one continuous sentence in Paul's thought, and so we want to keep that context in mind as we hone in and focus on verse 20 through verse 23. So let's start by reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, just as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, Lord, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us who believe. Father, we pray that your power would be evident as your word is preached, as the Holy Spirit ministers to us. May those of us who have faith in Christ, may our faith be strengthened and may our joy in the Lord increase. And Lord, may you fill our lives with spiritual power. And for those of us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that your power would come upon those who hear the gospel this day Lord, that you might cause them to be born again. And Lord, that you might overcome the deadness of their heart and so make them alive together in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last fall, Caitlin and I decided to rework one of our empty bedrooms, which was a bit of an anomaly there for a season in our life. Uh, But we decided to work one, one of those empty bedrooms into a study for me to be able to study and write sermons and and do all the sorts of uh, deep thinking tasks that I do in prayer. And with her designer eye, 
Caitlin got to work designing the project on a budget, which she is quite skilled in. And so she got to work. And I really didn't care too much about the design. Uh, that's more her area. But there was one request that I had, and it was the request that proved by far the most difficult and complicated of the project. I wanted recessed lighting in the room. All there was was this dingy fan with one bulb. It was incredibly dark. And I'm like, if I'm going to be reading and studying and writing, I need good lighting in this room. And so, of course, that task of adding lights to that room was easier said than done. And of course, it was well beyond my skill level. Too cheap to hire a professional. So I called Alan Medley, right? Who, uh, who is a electrician and does wonderful work. And I called Alan. I said, Alan, would you mind helping me out? Would you generously and kindly come over and help me figure out how to do this, put these lights in? And so he came and he spent the whole day with me. And of course, we discovered that installing that lighting proved to be far more difficult than both I expected, certainly, but even more than he expected. Because we found that the easy part of the project was cutting out the drywall and the ceiling and putting the lights in their proper place. That was relatively easy. We did that in about half an hour. The hard part was running the cables through the ceiling without breaking apart all the drywall because we encountered stud after stud that we had to drill through and then fish the wire through in order to get it to connect to all the recessed lighting. So it was difficult because we knew that if we got the lights in place, that's great. They look pretty, but they wouldn't have any power to them. They wouldn't illuminate anything. It wouldn't be good for anything. So by God's grace and Alan's skill and my cheerleading, right, we eventually got lights connected to, to, the, the, to the power source. You see, the, the physics of electricity teach us an important spiritual lesson, that the Lord has called us as the church to shine as lights in the world. Jesus says that we are to be the light of the world, but without a firm connection to the power source, we're not going to illuminate anything, will we? We are the branches. Christ is the vine. Spiritual power seems so absent in our lives and indeed in our churches. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we have not connected nor understood the source of our spiritual power. Many of us just simply aren't abiding in Christ. And most of us think quite little about the power of Christ in our lives. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, the text before us today, Paul wants us to comprehend, to understand, to appreciate, and indeed tap into the power of Christ. Paul begins his prayer in chapter 1, verse 15, and he prays for spiritual knowledge for the church at Ephesus. He prays that they might receive from God the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And as he prays that prayer, he prays for greater spiritual knowledge, particularly over three aspects of the gospel. We talked about these last time, right? He prayed for their, that they might know more of the hope to which they've been called. He prays that they might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then third, he prays for the, that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, over the course of this prayer, as Paul is praying, particularly over that last petition, that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power, Paul can't help himself. He's so carried along by the Holy Spirit that he must elaborate what he means here about the immeasurable greatness of, Paul's of God's power. And so Paul continues to, to talk about just how God's power has been made manifest in Christ Jesus and how he has applied it 
to our own hearts in Christ. So today we want to understand who is the one who powers the Christian life. And we do that by understanding and setting our mind and attention on considering the power and supremacy over Christ Jesus over everything and every one. And I pray that as we today meditate on the power of Christ, that the Lord would help those of us in Christ to abide in the Lord much more deeply. And so draw from his power, his spiritual strength, the strength that we need to live for his glory. So let's first consider in verse 20, the demonstrated power, Jesus's resurrection and ascension. So Paul prays, as we've already talked about, that the eyes of the Ephesians heart, they might be comprehended, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. But just what sort of power are we talking about, Paul? What power are you talking about here? How has God worked according to his great might? How does the glorious plan of redemption uniquely demonstrate God's power that he has worked for our sake? And of course, Paul's answer to this question is in Christ. Look at verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Christ is the demonstration of the Father's power. You see, throughout redemptive history, God frequently bends his arm, bends his might in order to rescue God's deliverance is his demonstration of the world to the world of his omnipotent power. So think back to uh, think back to Israel and Egypt. During Israel's deliverance out of the land of Egypt, the Lord displayed his supremacy, his might, his power over Pharaoh and the Egyptian pantheon with every single plague. And when the Lord eventually swallowed up Pharaoh's army with the collapsing walls of the Dead Sea that he had parted, the delivered Israelites sang praises to the Lord. And what did they sing? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You see, God redeems by his immeasurable greatness of his power. And of course, that leads his people, who are the recipients of that redemption, to praise his name. And just as it was for the first exodus, even more so it is for the second exodus in Christ. The redemption of Israel out of the land of Egypt is simply the foreshadow of the substance of God's ultimate plan of redemption, his powerful working in Christ. You see, a swarm of gnats and leaping frogs is but an appetizer compared to the feast of power God has now given us in Christ. We can see the power of God evident in all of Jesus's life as we look at it carefully. We see it in his incarnation as the eternal word of God put on flesh and dwelt among us as the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in the person of Christ. We, we of course, see it over the course of, of Jesus's entire life right, over his miracles and his power and his teaching. But still, Paul stresses here two crucial aspects of Jesus's ministry. And they're just the two aspects that I think we today tend to overlook and rather minimize. Of course, Christ's power is displayed in his incarnation and his ministry, even in the cross itself. But Paul stresses two often neglected aspects of Jesus's ministry. 
his resurrection when he raised him from the dead and his ascension seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's where Paul, as he's thinking and meditating on the immeasurable greatness of God's power in Christ, that's where his mind gravitates. He gravitates towards the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. So let's think about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the most significant event in all of human history, bar none. And our focus, though, I think as evangelicals, tends to to gravitate more towards the cross. And rightly so. Every drop of Jesus' blood drips with the reminder of the horrible consequences of our sin, and also it reminds us of the undeserved love that God has given to us and sinners. But it is the resurrection of Christ, his triumph over sin and death, where God uniquely showcases Christ as the victor, as the one who triumphs over his enemies, as the one who conquers sin, as the one who vanquishes death itself. And so by Jesus' resurrection, he redeems our flesh and he ensures that all who trust in him and in the finished work of the cross will also be raised on that last day in resurrection. So Paul wrote wrote to the Corinthians, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You see, the resurrection of Christ from the grave demonstrates uniquely the power of God, and it showcases to the world the glory of God. Now, closely linked with the resurrection, Paul says, is the ascension also displays Jesus's power. The ascension refers to the conclusion of Jesus's time here on earth after his resurrection, where he ascended into his father's right hand. So if you want to be reminded of this event in Jesus' life, go to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus ascends into heaven, where he's risen, where he's taken up. So the importance of Jesus' ascension, I think, is probably by far one of the most overlooked aspect of Jesus' ministry. What, what is the ascension about? It's overlooked by us, but the apostles never overlooked it. <laughs> in fact, the apostles talk about it all the time because they understood that Jesus's ascension into heaven has great theological significance, but not just theological significance, it is incredibly relevant to the ongoing day-by-day Christian life. So why is the ascension so important? Now, the New Testament authors have a few favorite Old Testament scriptures that they love to talk about, and one of those is a passage that Paul alludes to here in verse 20, and it's Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. A footstool. Jesus quotes that psalm about himself in order to silence the religious leaders in Mark's gospel. During during the final week of Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion, the religious leaders come together to try to entrap Jesus in his words. So they prepare all these careful verbal snares and traps in order to try to entrap Jesus. But of course, Jesus, the wise teacher that he is, foils all their traps. But then Jesus raises a question of his own. He goes on the offensive at the end of the chapter. And he raises a question from Psalm 110, verse 1. And he says, how can David, the author of the psalm, call the future Messiah Lord? After all, if the Messiah is David's son, how can the son then be Lord over David? Psalm 110 predicts that the Messiah would come both as the son of David and as the son of God. 
And so the New Testament writers grabbed onto that verse in Psalm 110, just as Jesus did, in order to help us understand Jesus's supremacy over everything. And it is in Jesus's ascension into heaven that sees the fulfillment of the psalm. The father raises his son from the dead in the resurrection and sets him as preeminent and honorable over all as he is seated at the right hand of the father. And that is where Christ is now. It's where he is now. Where is Jesus? Well, he's alive. Rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. And he is right now, presently in this moment, sitting at the right hand of his father in the heavenly places. So why is the ascension so important? Why do we tend to overlook it? Let me give you four quick reasons why we should think more deeply about the ascension of Christ, because this has incredible practical ramifications for our lives. First one is this, the ascension of Christ completes the work of his resurrection. It completes the work of his resurrection. In his resurrection, Christ redeems our flesh, our body. He is the new human. He is the new Adam. The resurrection is God's restoration of fallen humanity. And what is the aim of our redeemed flesh? What is God doing in the resurrection? Why has God chosen not merely to save our souls, but to save our bodies? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians, he's in Ephesians 1.4, that he might present us holy and blameless before him. You see, Jesus's ascension into heaven actually begins God's ultimate work of bringing a human person into the presence of God. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, fully God and fully human. He intercedes for us. Jesus's ascension brings a human person holy and blameless into his presence so that we might follow him. So the ascension of Jesus's flesh is the first fruit of our own ascension. When we will one day rise to meet the Lord in the air and so dwell in the presence of God on the day of the Lord with our redeemed, restored, and resurrected flesh. The ascension completes the work of the resurrection that Jesus had begun. Second, the ascension of Christ enables his ministry of intercession. It enables his ministry of intercession. These, this is by far one of the sweetest realities of the Christian life that we do not think about enough. What is Jesus doing right now? What is he doing right now in this moment? Jesus is sitting in the presence of his father at this moment at his father's right hand, and he's pleading your cause before his throne. He's interceding for us. He is our great high priest and mediator. And it is the ascension of Christ that makes the daily gift of his intercessory ministry. It's what makes it possible. So the author of Hebrews understood this as he considered the ministry of Christ. He said in Hebrews 7 verse 25, consequently, consequently, he being Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ Jesus lives. He's ascended to his father right hand and thereby he can make ongoing intercession for his people. Third, the ascension means Jesus has now sent his Holy Spirit. He has now sent his Holy Spirit. Without the ascension, we wouldn't have Pentecost. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 16? He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Really? Jesus, why? Why is it to our advantage if you go away? 
What does he say? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, the indwelling spirit of God that is in the heart of every believer and the ongoing ministry of that Holy Spirit, not only in his work of regenerating hearts, but of sanctifying us before the Lord, the Holy Spirit does that work because the Son, who has ascended to the Father, sent him. Even now to us in this very moment, as the word of God is being preached, the work of the Spirit is only possible in this moment because Jesus, who has ascended to the Father, has sent us the Spirit. Fourth, the ascension means that Jesus is exalted over all. He's exalted over all. The ascension is the enthronement of Christ. It is the crowning of the deserved king. It is the coronation of the Lord of heaven and earth. And as we will see in our next point, Christ's power is unchallenged. He has supreme authority. Let's elaborate on this more as we look at verse 21 through 22, unchallenged power, the supremacy of Christ's authority. So the, so the father has exalted his son into the heavenly places. He has been raised above all and Jesus has no rivals. He is unchallenged in his power and in his authority. So the Lord Jesus has authority over everything. And Paul emphasizes in the text quite strongly to make sure we don't miss it, that Jesus has no competitors. He has no rivals. Look at what he says about Jesus. He says, Jesus is far above all. Far above all, not just a little above, but he is far above. Paul, Paul is helping us see that when it comes to the supreme authority of the risen Christ who is now ascended to the Father, nobody comes close. It is not even a competition. And so Paul lists off four descriptors to show the domination of Jesus over everyone and everything. He says he is far above, what does the text say? He is far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion. He's, he's, he's above it all. Paul speaks of Christ's authority in the cosmos. And this is a present authority. Consider the, the power today that we see in the most powerful men and women in our culture. Presidents and senators, CEOs and billionaires, influencers and celebrities. But yet whatever rule or power that they think they may have is not only way less than Jesus's current rule and power, but they are in fact subjected even now to his power. Because of the supremacy of Christ over everything, Christ, Paul says, is given the name that is above every name. He's given a name that is above every name. You see, in the ancient world, knowing someone's name was believed to give you power over that individual. Think sort of like Rumpelstiltskin, the old fairy tale, right? If you know the name, you got power over that individual. That was the way the ancient world often thought about names. And so a person's name actually exposed something about your identity. So remember when Jesus interacted with the demon-possessed man who's gnashing himself with, with stones, the first century audience would have been absolutely amazed at Jesus who commanded the demon to share his name, that he had power to summon that demon to disclose his name. You see, the point here in, uh, in, in Ephesians, that Jesus's name is above authority in every other name, that would have particularly struck the Ephesians. Because Ephesus, if you think back to Acts, was a city obsessed with the magical arts. 
Remember the sons of Sceva in Acts 19? It's a humorous episode, right? They, they attempt to use Jesus' name in order to cast out demons. And you remember how the evil spirit responded? Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you guys? And Paul says here that Jesus' name is above every other name, meaning that no one can claim authority over him. Jesus has no rivals. And Paul stresses that Jesus' supremacy is not just a present reality right here, right now in the first century, but Jesus is supreme over everything and everyone forever. Jesus is not only ruler of the present age, but the future age as well. Notice what the text says, but also in the one to come. You see, as Paul sees Jesus' rule, Christ's reign is a present reality and a future reality. It is an already, it is a not yet. And on the one hand, we know that because Jesus has risen and he has ascended into heaven to be with his father, we know that the king has already ascended. He has already come to his throne. He already has unmatched power. He reigns over the earth, but yet even still, the world is in rebellion against this king. He has yet to bring the sword of his judgment upon his enemies. And he has yet to usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so for that, we wait for his return. And though the king of kings and lord of lords has permitted the rebellion of this world for a little while longer, it doesn't take away the astounding truth that Christ right now in this moment has rule and authority and power and dominion far above everyone and everything. And this should comfort us, church, shouldn't it? I mean, think about our world for a second. We live in a world that seems to be increasingly mocking Christ and those who serve him. May we never forget when we're discouraged that Jesus right now in this moment is the present and authoritative king over all. The world has rejected its king. Scoffers seem to be growing in number year by year, but for the redeemed of Christ and those who have experienced the power of Christ in our hearts, may we now recognize what the world will one day be forced to acknowledge, that he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. While we shouldn't be surprised when those following the prince of the power of the air reject the rule of Jesus, we should, though, be shocked when God's people do not gladly gladly accept Jesus' authority over their lives. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be in Christ, if you claim Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then he is your Lord. It's not just pious language we spout, but we mean he's your ruler. He's your master. He is your authority. He is the good king, the benevolent king, right, who's fearsome in holiness and who is cloaked in immense power. That is who he is. And yet many today who profess to follow Christ refuse to submit to his word. And so they deny the scriptures. They neglect reading Christ's command for their lives. They live such flippant and worldly lives that they live, their lives look more like those in rebellion against God than those who love God. You see, if we long for the world to recognize the supremacy of Christ. And you better believe the church must strive to show that supremacy in their own individual lives. So let me ask you, does your life this morning, does it show to the world, does it show to your neighbors, does it show to your co-workers that Jesus is the risen and resurrected King? Do you live day by day in glad submission 
to Jesus's rule over you? Do you speak of his kingdom with great affection and joy and hope and gladness of heart? Does, does Jesus have your allegiance? Does he have your allegiance above your friends, above your family, above the opinion of a mocking culture? Because if we call Jesus Lord, then we better live in light of that confession. And we better demonstrate it to the world what it looks like when a redeemed and glad and joyful people submit to the king of all the earth. And Jesus' authority over us, we must remind ourselves, is good news. <laughs> it is good news. Indeed, not only for us, but it is good news for the whole world. It is fantastic news. You see, I think we tend to be, as Americans, so anti-authoritarian that when we hear the, the call of Christ's lordship, when we hear pastors like me talk about submission or subduing our life to Christ, we kind of coil at that. We reject that. But Christ's authority, as Paul celebrates here, this is really good news. This is really good news for us. You see, Paul's original audience, unlike us, they, they would have been bursting at delight as they read verse 22. Praise God that Jesus is far above all rule, power, authority, and dominion. Praise God. That is good news. Well, we tend to be a little more skittish about it. Do I really want Jesus to have authority over my life? But we must see that Christ's lordship over the cosmos and Christ's lordship over the life of the believer is good news. So Paul writes as he continues, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Here, Paul alludes to another Psalm, this Psalm being Psalm chapter eight. And in that Psalm, the Psalm marvels at God's creation. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then he sings in verse six of that Psalm. He says, and see if you can spot the similar language here. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, under his feet. And so Paul, so familiar with the Old Testament, he picks up that language. You have put all things under his feet. And as he reads Psalm 8, he understands that Jesus is the one who has absolute authority over everything. And he is the one who completes humanity's God-given task from creation. So while Adam was in the garden, the Lord gave him the command to fill the earth and subdue it, to fill the earth and subdue it. But yet under Adam's headship, brokenness came into the world by sin. But now the new man has come. Now Christ Jesus, the son of God has come and he is the one who brings the cosmos under his subjection. And why is that good news? Well, it's because Jesus has authority and he has the power to mend this broken world. He can fix what Adam ruined. Every molecule and every star, every dictator and every governor, every virus and every drop of rain spurns into action at the command of King Jesus. They are under his feet. He is the sovereign and supreme Lord of all. And so God has been so kind, and there's the really good news. Here's where the church at Ephesus would have just been exploding with joy and gladness because this Christ, this one who is supreme and exalted over all, has been given to the church. 
It's been given to the church. He's our Christ. He is our head. He is our authority. He is our ruler. And he exercises his will and his rule for the glory of his father. And as we've seen earlier in this chapter, to bring about every spiritual blessing that the triune God from eternity past has determined to pour out upon us. His rule will ensure all the wonderful things that God has promised will come to pass. And so as we get swept away with Paul's praise and prayer, we can't help but find incredible comfort here if you will study the text and consider it carefully. You see, the, the fearful and living God, filled with holiness, radiant in his splendor and power and might, this God has made us his children. We've been adopted in Christ. And as God reigns in Christ over the cosmos, over this very earth, we then, as God's children, are the beneficiaries of his rule. So this is so helpful, particularly in generations and in times like the church at Ephesus, where there's persecution and they're tired and they're being outcasted by society. Paul gives a sweet comfort that reminds them of the hope that we have in the power of Christ. See, increasingly, as we live in a post-Christian America, I think we're going to have much more in common with the early church than past generations. We are already, I think, learning quite quickly what it's like to be on the outside, to be looked down upon, to be a minority. And you know what? Sometimes I think that's probably a pretty good thing for us. I think we need that. Christ's present rule, his present rule even now was a great hope to Paul's generation when they were the minority, when they were the outcasts. And guess what, church? 2,000 years have gone by, but we had that same hope. We have that same hope in our own generation. Church, don't you, don't you realize that Christ is king, not only in Paul's generation, but also in this one. He rules and he reigns. The Lord Jesus has all things under his feet. He's not surprised by your trials. He's not surprised by your sufferings. He's not surprised by persecution or rejection. He's not surprised by our tears of affliction. So therefore, we can live in confidence and hope because Christ is sovereign and he is reigning and ruling even now. Nothing will befall us that the king does not will. And so Paul wants us to be reminded of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul shows that God has worked his power in Christ by his resurrection and ascension and rule that, that God has exerted his power in Christ for our good toward those who believe. So Christian, there is no need to fear this present age. No need. So, so many increasingly who profess Christ seem so anxious about the state of the world. The problems of the world seem numerous, don't they? Ukraine and Russia, inflation and gas prices, religious liberty and persecution, and just more and more things that seem to be wrong and distressing in the world. And as we strive to do good for the glory of Christ in a world as his citizens, as his representatives of his kingdom, we cannot be afraid. Cannot be afraid. We cannot lose hope. We must never forget who the real authority is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who sits at the Father's right hand and everything has been placed under his feet. You see, Christ's 
present and powerful reign, even now, should demolish any anxiety or worry in your heart. Consider the logic of what Paul is trying to help us see, what he's trying to help the church at Ephesus see as he's praying for them that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. And here's the logic. If Christ, who has worked from eternity past to bless you with every spiritual blessing, is now the one who is in charge of the cosmos, why would you worry? Why would you worry? If, if he, Jesus, reigns with unmatched and unchallenged power even now, why are you afraid? If God opens the eyes of your heart, and I pray that he does that today, if he opens the eyes of your heart to see and to sense the power and supremacy of Christ over the world and over your life, then you will live with unwavering confidence. You will live with joy unrivaled. You will live with hope undiminished. But instead, so often, we don't live our lives that way, do we? We, we live nervously, anxiously, worrisome lives. And why, why do we tend to live that way? Well, it's because we forget, and indeed, I would say, do not fully understand the immeasurable greatness of his power, which is Paul, why Paul prays that the church at Ephesus might know the immeasurable greatness of his power. We need to know this more because we're so prone to forget it. But yet there is more. There is more. The power of Christ is unchallenged and unmatched, yes. But that power, Paul says, comes to dwell within us. With Christ as our head, he is, we are his body. So therefore, we can live day by day in Christ's spiritual power. And that leads to the third point this morning. Indwelled power, the presence of Christ in the church. We see this in verse 23. Look at what the text says. We'll start in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to who? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Paul concludes his expanded thoughts on the immeasurable greatness of God's power by leaving us with verse 23, which describes how Christ's power that's at work comes to reside in the church. Notice the flow of, of Paul's thought. The power of God is exerted, right? When, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, and now Jesus reigning, reigns in heaven, Jesus is exalted and rules over all, everything's under his feet, and Christ is now head over all things to the church. But what makes verse 23 so astounding is that we are not only the beneficiaries of God's power, but we, as the body of Christ, are filled with this power. We become the mechanism, if you will, by which God in Christ exerts his rule and reign in the kingdom on earth. You see, the power of God was at work for the church, but now God's power dwells within the church. Look at verse 23 again. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul uses a common metaphor that he uses elsewhere in describing the church as his body, right? Christ is the head, we are the members. And the verb in this text is actually a little bit ambiguous here in the original language regarding who is being filled. Is Christ filling the church or is the church filling Christ in some ways? I think Paul intends here to say that Christ fills the church. But the main point here is pretty clear, is that Christ and his church are joined together, being united together by the church's faith in Christ. They are joined together into a mystical union that the fullness of Christ 
dwells within his people. And so as the body of Christ, we seek to spread the kingdom of Christ around the world. And we do so by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So if you were to describe the church today, you might come up with a few adjectives to describe the church. But you probably might not think to use the term spiritual power to describe the church today. If anything, we seem to be lacking in power, don't we? But yet Paul reminds us that the fullness of Christ is available to us. It's available to us. You see, today's lack of spiritual power in our generation doesn't stem from any lack of God's provision, but it stems from our refusal to use the spiritual strength that he's already given us. The the entire energy of the Christian life, the power to advance Christ's kingdom, the ability for godliness comes from the power of Christ. And it is only when we experience our union with Christ with a profound richness that we will begin to know and put into practice something of the immeasurable greatness of his power. So do you find yourself today struggling with an ongoing battle with sin, seemingly unable to put this little sin to death? You need Christ's power. Are you a coward when it comes to evangelism and testifying to the hope that is within you? You need Christ's power. Are you lacking in love and patience towards others in the church? Well, you guessed it. You need Christ's power. And the good news for those of us who are in Christ is that Christ makes all of his power available to us. It's all available. The fullness of Christ has filled the church. The spirit of Christ has been poured into our hearts. We're united to Jesus. So we do not lack access to power. We only fail to make use of it. And so, how do we do that? (laughs) How do we experience more of our union with Christ? How do we experience more spiritual power in your life and in mine? Of course, there's a lot we could say about this, but let me give us just a couple things. How do we practically tap in to the power of Christ we've talked about here? Well, first, take up every means of grace available to you. Take up every means of grace available to you. We talk about spiritual disciplines today instead of the means of grace, but they refer to the same things. These are the spiritual habits, the practices like Bible reading, meditation, memorization of scripture, rich prayer times, fasting, and the like. And the means of grace aren't spiritual obligations, but they are the conduits by which God dispenses his spiritual power to our lives. In other words, the means of grace are the God-prescribed spiritual pipelines where we experience the benefits of our union with Christ and so receive spiritual power. So to neglect the means of grace is to cut yourself off from Jesus, who has filled you and who is ready to share with you, even today, the immeasurable greatness of his power. So go back to the whole light illustration, right? The lights in my study would give off no light unless they maintain a constant connection to the power source. And so too it is for the Christian life. Daily spiritual power requires a daily connection to Jesus. He is the source. And we receive that power through the means of grace that God has given us. Second, covenant together with the local church. Covenant together with the local church. Christ's fullness, the text says, is shared with the church, with the assembly, with the people of God. So therefore, one of the ways 
that we experience the power of Christ in our lives is through the ministry of brothers and sisters in a local church who commit to love us, disciple us, correct us, and encourage us. So if you refuse to join a local church, you are severing yourself from one of the ways God in Christ has planned to fill you with spiritual power. The sweetness of our union with Christ is experienced not only individually, but corporately together. And as we minister to one another, we strengthen each other by the power of Christ. Every time you hear the word of God preached, every time after church a sister prays for you, or every time a brother at your community group says a wise word of counsel, there in that moment is the fullness of Christ being displayed to you for your spiritual good. See, if you're not a member of Redemption Church, we pray that you might plan to attend our next membership weekend coming up in April, that you might seek to covenant together with us as we seek to grow together by Christ's spiritual power. And if it's not Redemption Church, that's great, that's okay, but seek out some other faithful gospel-preaching church where you can be a participant in the ministry of the saints by which Christ's power fills and spreads into our lives. You see, if you seek and you sense and you feel, if you sense spiritual weakness in your life today as a Christian, it may very well stem from your disconnection from the ministry of a local church. So if you are a member of Redemption Church, then we have covenanted together as a local assembly to showcase the supremacy of Christ and the fullness of his power to, to the world. That's one of the reasons why we exist. We have locked arms together for the glory of Christ, to care for one another, to ex exercise a faithful, watchful care over one another. So therefore, be honest, be forthright in your conversations with the church. Share your struggles, share your sins with the body. Both give and receive discipleship, correction, and help. And if you are a member of this church who is in possession of the Holy Spirit, then you are the means by which God will share his spiritual power to other members in this church. Therefore, let us strive together to experience the fullness of him who fills all in all. And together in Christ, may we seek to advance the kingdom of Christ, the one who is supreme over every name. And may his kingdom come, may his will be done, and may we commit to spreading the kingdom of God and the rule of Christ in Wilson and beyond by the immeasurable working of his power toward us who believe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come and Lord, we confess our lack of spiritual power. Lord, in so many ways, we, we feel weak. We feel anemic. We feel struggling in our Christian life. Lord, we find ourselves filled with worry and anxiety. Lord, we find ourselves plateaued or even declining in terms of our spiritual lives. Father, I pray that as we have meditated upon the power of Christ, manifested by his resurrection and his ascension, and Lord, even by his present rule ever, ever, even now, Father, I pray that you would help us to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the immeasurable greatness of his power at work towards us who believe. Lord, that you would help the Christians in this room realize what they've been given, the great power that is at work in Christ and made available to him, to, by him, by faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would mark us as a people at Redemption Church, as a people filled with spiritual power. 
And Lord, that we would take up every means available to us, that we would pursue a life together in the local church with our covenant commitment, seeking to display your power, not only to each other in our lives, but Lord, to the watching world. But Father, I do pray for those in this room, Lord, who don't know Jesus' power because they have yet to be connected to him by faith. So Father, I pray, Lord, that as they see their sin, as they see their spiritual need, or that you would lead them to repentance. They would turn away from their sins and Lord, that they would put their faith in Jesus for the salvation that they need. And Lord, that you might come upon them in great power even now. Lord, as you cause them to be born again. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to respond to your word, we pray, Lord, that your power would be evident among us this day. And Lord, that Christ would be shown even in our worship gathering as the one who is supreme and exalted over all. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.